so I break life with, with this and uh, lead a group discussion about what makes for a good argument, what doesn't. Um, obviously, that was, in general, not a good argument. Although he included everybody, what was really going on there was a lot of people sharing their opinions, expressing their opinions, but without actually arguing for their opinions. There was no uh, reasons or evidence shared uh, in the discussion. Uh, now, the host of that discussion seemed to want to make his mind up on this really important issue. First off, by just believing the first answer that he got to the question. I'll just believe the first thing I hear about whether or not there's a God. Now, is that a good way to make your mind up about a, a big issue like that? I'll just believe whatever my family happens to believe, say. Well, then he moves on and he realises that people disagree. So let's just believe whatever the majority believe. Casting vote. You know, I'll just believe whatever the majority believe. Again, perhaps not the most wise way of making your mind up on that issue. Uh, rather to make your mind up wisely on an issue like this, you need to go beyond sharing opinions or just going along with the crowd or with your society or with your family and to actually think it through, reason it through for yourself. We should be able to disagree agreeably in a nice, agreeable fashion with one another. Um, there was a point in that sketch where someone said, it's just that we respectfully disagree. And Raymond said, oh man, that is bad news. <laughs> it's not, it's good news. It's far better news than disagreeing disagreeably with one another. Because where does that get you? It gets you to believing whoever has the biggest stick in the, <laughs> in the room. Um, no, we should uh, agree to disagree agreeably. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we have to treat all ideas as equal just because we have to respect the people who hold the ideas. People may all be created equally, have a right to their own opinion, a right to express and defend their opinion, a right to have their opinion taken seriously enough by other people that they will bother disagreeing with them. At least if I disagree with you, I'm respecting your opinion, in a sense. I'm not saying, oh, who cares what you think? I'm saying I care what you think and I'm going to interact with it and bother disagreeing with you in an agreeable, reasonable manner. That's a sign of respect. But none of that means that we have to respect all ideas as being equal, because they're not. Because some are true, you know, the Earth really does orbit the Sun, rather than the Sun orbiting the Earth. Some are true, some are false. Some are good, some are evil. It really is wrong to torture small children just because you feel like it. That is wrong. Um, so we need to, in life, just as a basic life skill, let alone an academic skill, be able to sift and sieve true from false, good from evil, beautiful from ugly. Particularly in the kind of culture, this is a photo of Times Square in New York. 
The kind of culture in which we live is one that bombards us on a daily basis with messages from people. Um, An interesting statistic uh, about American teenagers. Uh, What proportion of time do they spend on different activities? Well, the number one activity in terms of how much time American teenagers give to it is sleeping. Okay? The number two activity for American teenagers in terms of how much time they spend doing it is looking at a screen. Computer screen, television screen, cinema screen, iPad screen, whatever. Giving other people opportunities to communicate feelings and thoughts and behaviours to them in words and music and images and occasionally arguments. But actually, the bulk of this communication does, does not involve arguments. It involves advertising, which very rarely involves arguments. Even on issues like, do you believe in God? This is the famous British atheist Richard Dawkins. And a couple of years ago, he had this... Uh, was involved in this bus poster campaign. There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Um, a rather interesting, slightly odd message. But again, <laughs> should you make up your mind on a significant issue like, is there a God, according to which side of the debate has the biggest advertising budget? Maybe not the wisest way of being convinced. Um, again, this is not sharing of an argument. This is just an attempt at persuading, communicating a message. And adverts uh, often do this. Um, let me show you a recent uh, advert for hair colouring that we've had. Uh, you may or may not uh, know this already, but here's a very brief advert. And um, as you watch this advert, think to yourself, what are the advertisers really saying to me? I mean, obviously, they're saying, please give us your money. That's the basic message of all advertising. But they try and be a bit more subtle about it, usually, and and they try and get you to give them your money by communicating something else to you. Let's have a look and see what you think they're really saying to you through this advert. Nice and easy transforms your hair colour with an expert blend of subtle tones. For beautiful, natural-looking hair colour. It's a small change to your hair that makes a big change to your head. So be a shade braver. Nice and easy, be a shade braver. Okay, who wants to to tell us, what what did you receive in terms of a message from the makers of that advert? What did you feel they were telling you, trying to get you to feel, or whatever? Yeah. One of the things uh, they said was you don't have to think twice. Yeah, interesting. Don't think about it. (laughs) What else did they communicate to you? How, yeah. Success, image of success, maybe. Success, yes. Use our project, your product, you'll be successful. Um, happy and so on, yeah. Do your own thing. Do your own thing, stand out from the crowd, be an individual, 
buy this mass-produced, mass-marketed product. Yeah. Yeah. Feel better about yourself. Feel better about yourself. Yes. Why would you feel better about yourself in using their product? What, what were they saying to you about how you do feel about yourself and how you'll feel better if you use their product? Yeah. Uh, if you dye your hair, you have an excuse to buy new, new shoes? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So they tell, there's this little drama there, isn't there? Oh. Those are nice shoes. Oh, it's a very posh shoe shop. Very expensive, nice, successful shoes. I'd really like to buy them, but oh, oh dear, look at the very stern lady in the shop looking down her nose at me as if to say, I hope you don't walk into my shop. You're not the sort of customer that we like around here. You're not worthy of coming into my swanky shoe shop. Ah! But then I remember, I have coloured my hair. (laughs) (laughs) I am worth lovely shoes. I can have the confidence to stare down stern, patrician-looking grey ladies who own shoe shops. And I now can walk down the street, literally inches higher than everybody else, carefully chosen by the uh, advertisers, so that I stand literally head and shoulders above the crowd, who all have different hair colour than me. (sighs) <sighs> isn't my life wonderful because I've spent some money <laughs> yeah they take you on this little emotional sort of roller coaster ride uh, and in, in a sense there's a sort of positive way of putting that message use our product you'll feel more confident and better about yourself and have a more successful life the flip side of that of course is what they're really saying to you is unless you buy our product you are not worthy you're not beautiful You're not successful. You don't stand out from the crowd. You're not an individual. So they're creating this need, this hole in you, and then pretending to ride to the rescue on a white stallion and say, let us save you from this terrible hole that you find yourself in, that you probably didn't know you were in until you watched the beginning of our advert. (laughs) It is persuasion by telling you a story, by an illustration. It's just making various assertions at you without any evidence. I mean, you you could presumably do some peer-reviewed psychological studies with a group of ladies who'd used hair colouring and a group of ladies who hadn't used hair colouring and, you know, control groups and all of this. It would make for a much more boring advert, but at least it would have some, some argument in it, maybe. I'm going to flip over the second example and get down to the point of saying there's a lot of sharing of opinions and assertion making in culture and particularly media culture doesn't really value argumenting, uh, showing your workings. Um, But as a life skill and as an academic skill, we do have to value showing your working, doing the argument. So there's a big difference between an assertion, simply making a statement or issuing a truth claim, and actually giving an argument. An argument is a set of statements, more than one truth claim, linked together logically to try and lead you to believing something. As the American Christian philosopher William Lane Craig puts it, an argument is a set of statements which serve as premises 
leading to a conclusion. Excuse me, you might just address uh, everyone to the sheet of paper that you yep. have got. Uh, for the next step, if you want to see when you open it up, you can find the quote from Bill Craig. An argument is a set of statements. Great. I was just wondering what the word premises means. Sure. So, yes, premise. Or, or, if one premise, several premises. Yeah. Um, it, uh, so there are different truth claims in an argument. And the truth claim that it's arguing for is called the conclusion. And the truth claims that are used to argue for the conclusion are called the premises. So because of this claim and because of this truth claim and so on, therefore you ought to believe this conclusion, this truth claim. So these are the premises and they're supporting the, the conclusion. Yeah. Can I just ask another word? It's, uh, assertion? Maybe? Assertion, just saying that something is true. But without yeah, saying or claiming that something's true without giving you a reason for believing it. Yeah. Okay? Now, uh, terminology again. This, a lot of this goes back to an ancient Greek philosopher called Aristotle who wrote one of the first textbooks in logic, one of the first people to think about the nature of thinking to argue about arguing. And uh, here is um, an example of a good argument, often attributed to Aristotle. And it, it should be a kind of intuitively obvious thing. He argues like this. Socrates was another ancient Greek philosopher guy. He says that Socrates is a human. Premise one. Truth claim one. Socrates is a human. Two. All humans die. They're mortal. Conclusion. Therefore, Socrates will die. If Socrates is a human and all humans die, then Socrates must be going to die. Okay? Now, given that that's obviously an argument that works, this is a set of truth claims that gives you a reason to believe that Socrates will, will die you can then embark on the project of saying, okay, why is that a good argument? Why does that work? What has gone right, as it were, to make that argument work? And therefore, by contrast, what could go wrong in the process of making an argument? And once you know what, what has to go right, what could go wrong with an argument, you're in a really good position to, to analyse and construct good arguments, to analyse arguments and say, is this a good argument or not? On your sheets as well, we have this sort of more sort of visual image of this kind of argument where you have two 
premises and a conclusion. It's called a, a syllogism. The Greek word syllogism, you can see the word logic. It kind of comes from the same root. That just means this smallest unit of argumentation where you have some truth claims tied together, sort of embedded in a logical structure that leads you to believe a conclusion. Which is fine, but you, you, you see it, it, it doesn't move you very far forward necessarily. It moves you from the premises to the conclusion. But that's only a, a, a sort of little movement. Uh, actually to, to move a long way to change people's opinions a long way from where they are to somewhere else, you need lots of these little units of argument. And you, you need to see how they, they link or tie together to make longer arguments, more complicated arguments are made up of these little simple premise, premise, conclusion arguments. Uh, here's a little visual illustration of that. track is a bit like a syllogism. It's got two rails or premises and they're connected together by these sleepers or by some sound logic. And that allows you to mount your train of argument from A to B. But just as one section of track is rarely enough to get you to your destination, so a single syllogism is rarely enough to carry the whole argument you want to make. A train relies upon many sections of the track carefully laid together one after another. A train of argument relies upon a series of syllogisms carefully connected one to another to carry the argument from its first premise all the way through to its concluding destination. I don't know if that pun carries over to the Norwegian because in English we have the phrase a train of argument. Um, so it, it's a kind of joke but um good 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 that's good <laughs> um, so if you have one argument one syllogism you can kind of carry forward that conclusion and treat it as the first premise in a new argument and by combining that with a new piece of information, a new truth claim, you will generate a new conclusion. And you can keep doing that, carrying forward, adding new information, getting a new conclusion, until you've said everything that you need to say to get from where you're starting to where you want to end up. For example, here's the little syllogism about Socrates dying. Let's carry forward that piece of information and have a second syllogism. Socrates will die. Dead bodies decompose. Therefore, Socrates' body will decompose. Maybe Aristotle had it in for Socrates. They didn't get on particularly or something. I don't know. But you see how you carry it forward. Now, often people would, in real life, write this out as premise, 
premise, premise, premise, conclusion. And they wouldn't bother writing out the conclusion and it as a new premise, writing it out twice. Because it just takes a lot of time. But any argument that is longer than two premises and a conclusion, you can analyse, you can break up into a number of individual syllogisms, these little units of argument. So however long it is, it, it will have to break up into premise, premise, conclusion, carry forward, premise, premise, conclusion. And throughout the conference we write it like this to make it very clear that you have long arguments which are all made up of these little arguments. Let's uh, try you out on spotting uh, an argument uh, in not a real-life situation, but a filmic uh, illustration of a real-life situation. Um, The law courts are, of course, full of argumentation. And here, American comedian Jim Carrey is playing a lawyer uh, in a courtroom situation, trying to win a case for his client. Um, The only set-up information you need if you haven't seen this film is uh, two bits of information. One, Jim Carrey's character is suffering (laughs) under a magical curse which means he literally cannot say anything untrue for a whole day. The entire humour of this film is based on the idea, good grief, how would a lawyer do their job if they couldn't lie? (laughs) It's rather cynical. Anyway, that's the premise of the film. Secondly, in this particular scene, he's trying to defend a lady client of his who had married a very rich man. Now, normally, if... Uh, she got divorced, she would get half of all the money that they jointly owned as a married couple. And they're getting divorced. But they're getting divorced because she's cheated on her husband and committed adultery. And she had signed what's called a prenuptial agreement, an extra contract that said, if you divorce me because I've cheated on you, you don't have to give me any money at all. Now, Jim Carrey's job is to say, okay, she's signed this prenuptial agreement, she has cheated on the husband, everybody knows she's cheated, but nevertheless, you should give her half of the money. And he can't lie. So he has to use a good argument. How is he going to do it? Well, towards the end of this clip, you will find that he makes an argument that is made up of two overlapping syllogisms. And on your worksheet, we've given you what amounts to the first premise of the argument and the conclusion, therefore, she gets half the assets, half the money. See if you can watch this film clip and then fill in the missing steps in the argument. Um, I'll give you a little time to do that and then we'll, we'll try and do it uh, together. But I shall, um, there's a bit of a setup in the scene and I, then I shall raise my hand and say, you know, here's where the argument really starts. So you know where he's launched into his winning argument. 
<laughs> you get the idea that, that he and she don't really get on in the film. Um, <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> you notice the biblical quotation there, of course, and the truth will set you free. Um, if we're starting from this prenuptial agreement is only valid and only has an effect if she was over 18 when she signed it. Okay? What is the next premise in the argument? A hand at the back there first. Yes. She lied about her age. She lied about her age. What was the significant thing about that? Making her a minor. Making her younger. Yes, making her a minor at the time, under 18. Okay, so... I've put she wasn't over 18. It doesn't matter if you've said, but she was a minor, or but she was under 18, or but she was only 17. For the, for the argument to work, those are all basically the same bit of information, the same proposition, as philosophers would say, just expressed in different words, in a different sentence. You can, of course, express the same meaning in completely different words, in completely different languages. But so long as the meaning is the, the meaning given by she wasn't over 18, she was only a minor, she was under 17, the argument will go through. So, let's think what follows from these two premises. Premise one, the prenup's only valid if she was over 18 when she signed it. Premise two, but she wasn't over 18 when she signed it, therefore... Prenuptial agreement is not valid. Absolutely. Now, second syllogism in this two syllogism argument, we carry that piece of information forward and we treat it, that conclusion, as the first premise of a second argument. So we have the prenuptial agreement is not valid. Something, and you know the conclusion that we're getting to, therefore, she does get half the money, she gets half the assets. So the logic now starts helping you because you th- simply have to think what would have to be true in the middle to get me from here to here? What's the kind of missing stepping stone that I, me- I need in the m- middle of the river to get me to the other side? What's this second premise here? The prenuptial agreement's not valid something, therefore she gets half the money. If, we, if it wasn't for the prenuptial agreement, she would get half the... Yeah, that's right. With anything to the... Yes? just have a question, yeah. because uh, she was a minor without parental consent, yes. as they say. Uh, but isn't the whole marriage really non-valid? An excellent question, which I will answer momentarily. This It's a technical legal point, this. Um, Yes, but as you say, if you've got without a valid prenuptial agreement, she gets half the money. But the prenup's not valid, therefore she gets half the money. The legal point being raised here is an excellent one, but in, in law, at least in America, I'm told, there are two types of legal contract. There are those which are considered to hold to be real in law until you have a legal annulment of the contract. 
And there are those contracts which, as soon as you show, didn't have a valid origin or basis, are immediately deemed to not hold anymore. So the prenuptial agreement is the kind of legal contract that as soon as he's shown it didn't have the right basis, is ruled not to hold. But a marriage is a legal contract that you have to go through a legal process of getting a a divorce, an annulment, and only when you get your annulment, your decree nisi, in law are you divorced. So, although... She couldn't, they could now go through a process of saying, well, this, this marriage was not a real marriage anyway and should be annulled. In law, it's considered to be a genuine marriage contract so until just, she's got a divorce paper. So if you got through the, the loophole, you're kind of in anyway? Yeah, so he, he's exp- very cleverly exploiting this legal difference between these two types of contract. It's a sort of legal loophole that he's... Managed to worm his way through. Yeah, excellent. Grand. So there's an example of someone using... I mean, of course, he didn't say... Okay, Your Honour, here is my first premise. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, here is my second premise. And so people don't go around talking like that unless they're, you know, either weird or a philosopher, which you may think is the same thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if people are arguing, this is the structure that the arguments break down into. Okay, so we've looked at the difference between just claiming, just asserting things and actually arguing for them, but so far we've looked at good arguments. But of course you can have bad arguments. Uh, It's clearly the case that just because you have two premises and a conclusion, like footballs are round, onions are round, Therefore, footballs are onions. Okay, this is an argument. It's just a bad argument. It's an unsound argument. You've got to have more in place than simply having two premises and a conclusion in order to have a good argument. And here is uh, Luke Pollard, the son of Nick Pollard, who set up Damaris Trust. Luke's just graduated from Oxford in philosophy and theology this uh, summer. And he's got a job now teaching uh, A-level students uh, philosophy and ethics. So um, this is Luke a few years ago talking about these extra things that you need in place for a good argument and illustrating it with breadsticks. Oh, yes. To make an argument work, it must have three solid building blocks. Thank you. First, it must be logically valid, which means its logic must work. Second, it must have true premises. And third, it must have non-ambiguous terms, which means the words the argument relies on must not have a double meaning. However, if one of these is broken and the whole structure falls down. Red sticks. Oh, yes. You'll find on your worksheet a flowchart diagram. This is the, just one column of that flowchart diagram. And that flowchart diagram really gives you everything you need to learn about logic. At, at least for most purposes. 
Luke was asking three questions or three conditions that a good argument has to pass. Are the premises, the truth claims, clear and unambiguous? Do they not rely on a double meaning of some repeating term? Does the conclusion really follow from the premises? That is, is the argument logically valid? And finally, well, are all of those premises true? Now, if you ask those three questions of an argument and you're confident about saying yes to all three of them, then you should think that it's a sound argument that does at least something to give you a reason to believe the conclusion. So if a sound argument is one that has to have unambiguous terms, valid logic, true premises, by contrast, an unsound argument, one that you shouldn't trust at all, would be one where any one of these three things is missing. Any one of these three conditions goes wrong. If there are ambiguous terms, if there are invalid logic, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises, or one or more of those premises is just false, well, then it's an unsound argument. And hence you have the whole flowchart diagram. Each of these questions, the answer is either yes or no in reality. You might, of course, be saying, I don't know. But the facts of the matter are that it either is or isn't trading on an ambiguity. The conclusion either does or doesn't follow from the premises. The, the premises either are or are not all true. And if you say no to any of these questions, then you should think that's an unsound argument. So that's a really useful flowchart diagram to keep about you. Excuse me, do you Well, uh, just one uh, question to those who are good in English. An ambiguous. What does it mean? Great. <laughs> Thank you. Let me give you an, an example of ambiguity or having two meanings. Um, this is a very brief uh, film clip from the 1920s, 1930s American comic Groucho Marx. It's not Karl Marx, the founder of Marxism, but Groucho Marx of the Marx Brothers. Um, in this scene, he's uh, pretending to have been on safari and he's giving a speech at a posh party about this safari that he didn't go on. Um, <laughs> and uh, here's a, a, one of his jokes that uh, plays upon the ambiguity of the English language. Um, I'll unpack it after I say it, but it's a very brief sketch and it's a nice illustration of ambiguity, even if it's not your sense of humour. <laughs> one morning... I shot an elephant in my pyjamas. How he got in my pyjamas, I'll never know. 
So the, the, the opening sentence is called ambiguous. It could mean one morning I was wearing my pyjamas when I shot an elephant. But more stupidly, it could mean one morning an elephant was wearing my pyjamas when I shot it. Now the second meaning is much more silly and less obvious than the first one, but it could mean that. And so interpreting it that way gets you a bit of a groan. Yeah. Couldn't it also mean that it was an elephant inside my pyjamas? Yeah, you could have both been in the pyjamas. <laughs> yes. It's like, good, good grief! <laughs> yes. <laughs> could mean that as well. Yeah, so it, there's lots of different ways of interpreting the same set of words. Um, now, we usually know how to interpret properly from just from the context and what's normal and so on. And you know it's silly to think that an elephant would be wearing your pyjamas and so on. But the words could mean that, and he trades on that to get a joke. So ambiguity in language is quite useful for puns, for comedians, but it's very dangerous for philosophers. Here's why. Premise, a plane, notice this term here, the English word plane, is a carpenter's tool. Here's a picture of a, a plane. Use it for planing flat and smooth wooden surfaces so, that, so you don't get splinters in your fingers. You plane it nice and smooth with, with a plane. It's like a big sort of razor blade for woodwork. Premise, the Boeing 747 is a plane. Same word. Conclusion, well, since this word means two completely different things, I can make it mean whichever I like in the conclusion. So, conclusion, therefore, the Boeing 747 is a carpenter's tool. And, of course, it's not. Um, but because, although this word reoccurs, because it has different meanings when it reoccurs, I can just play around with that when I get to the conclusion. So in an argument, when you see a term, a word, uh, reoccur, it needs to mean the same thing. Otherwise, people could be playing tricks uh, on that basis. Yeah. And it gets really confusing and dangerous when work is a god. Yes. Because which god are you talking about? Exactly, that can mean also the, the pantheistic god, Zeus, polytheistic god, Yahweh, the Muslim god, a trinitarian god. What do you mean? It's a, a word that has lots of different meanings in different contexts. Yeah. Now, invalid logic where the conclusion doesn't follow. Um, high fat foods are bad for you. Some yoghurt is high in fat. Therefore, all yoghurt is bad for you. <laughs> what conclusion should follow from those two premises? If high-fat foods are bad for you and some yoghurt is high in fat... Some yoghurt. Some yoghurt is bad for you. Absolutely. So if there's a difference between the conclusion that should follow and what is actually stated, then you know it's an unsound, it's a logically invalid argument. Uh, sometimes 
It might be that nothing at all follows from the premises of an argument. They just don't really lead you anywhere. Um, so you have to make sure that what is, what is concluded from the premises really does follow on from those premises. Now, sometimes when I'm having coffee at Damaris, I really want to dunk a biscuit in my tea or my coffee. Um, perhaps it's because I come from a Baptist background and we like dunking. Um, <laughs> thank you, someone you got that. But also, I, you know, I have to watch my, my calorie intake, as you can tell. Uh, and so I might be a little bit naughty and say something like this. I know, I'll, I'll just dig down to the bottom of the biscuit barrel and have one of those broken biscuits from the bottom. Because, I mean, as everyone knows, when you break a biscuit, all the calories in the biscuit start leaking out, don't they? So if I just have the broken biscuits that have been lying at the bottom of the barrel for ages, I won't be breaking my diet and I can still have cookies. No? (laughs) If only the world worked like that. But of course, this, this premise here is false. Now, notice there's no ambiguity in this argument. Broken biscuits is a term that reoccurs. Does it mean the same thing? Yes. Um, Does this conclusion follow from the premises? Yes. If, if I only ate broken biscuits, and if broken biscuits contain no calories, then I would have eaten no calories. So it's a logically valid argument, but it's not a sound argument because one of the premises is false. So those are illustrations of the three different ways in which arguments can go wrong. Any questions before we... I've got a little uh, quiz that we can all take part in and sort of try out how we are at spotting whether arguments are good ones or bad ones. Okay, well, let me show you. I'm just going to show you uh, arguments that are one syllogism. And they might be a good argument, or they might be a bad argument, an unsound. And if they're, if, if they're an unsound argument, it'll only be because one type of mistake has been made. So it'll be false premises or invalid logic or an ambiguity of of terminology, but I, I won't be nasty to you. It'll only be one type of mistake in each case. Although in real life, of course, an argument could make all the all the mistakes going. So have a think about this. Uh, all goldfish can ride bicycles. Of course. Uh, you, you are goldfish. Therefore, you can ride bicycles. Now. Don't be distracted by the fact that maybe the conclusion is true. I bet you can ride bicycles. That does not necessarily mean that this is a good argument for thinking that you can ride bicycles. You can have bad arguments for true premises. Not that I'm saying this is a bad argument. What do you think? Is this a good argument or a bad one? If it's a bad one, what has gone wrong with it? Is it... Ambiguity? Is it invalid logic? Is it false premises? Yes. 
Yeah, you, yeah. Well, I think, it's yes. A, yeah, it's a bad one because I'm not a goldfish. Exactly. <laughs> you are not a goldfish. And I've not met any goldfish that can ride bicycles either. Um, so I think both of those premises are wrong. So it's a bad argument because of false premises. Absolutely. Try out another one. Okay. When it rains, the pavement gets wet. The pavement is wet. Therefore, it must have rained. Is that right? Is that wrong? If it's wrong, what's gone, what's gone wrong? Knowledge, maybe. Yeah. Invalid logic. Yes. Why is, why is it invalid logic? Can anyone explain why that's wrong? Yeah. Could get wet from other sources than rain. Yes, absolutely. Very good. Um, technical way of expressing exactly that is to say rain is a sufficient condition. It's enough to make the pavement wet, but it's not a necessary condition of the pavement being wet. It doesn't have to have rained in order for the pavement to be wet. Someone could have been out there with a watering can, for all we know, <laughs> or a hosepipe, or whatever. So that conclusion, it must have rained, doesn't really follow. All you could really say is, maybe it rained. That would explain it, but we can't be sure, because there are other explanations, perhaps, and this wouldn't really solve the conundrum of why the pavement's wet. I'm washing the car using a sponge... Sponges grow in the sea. Sponges, SpongeBob SquarePants. Underwater sponges, yeah. Therefore, I am washing the car using something that grew in the sea. Ambiguous. Ambiguous, yes. Well done. Very good, very good. It's, of course, man made synthetic kind of sponges are very different. The kind of sponge you would use on a car, very different from the sort of undersea sponges, even though it's the same English word. Very well spotted. If being a bachelor means being an unmarried man, I'm a bachelor, I'm an unmarried man. And if Peter is a bachelor, then. Peter is an unmarried man. That's a good one, yeah? Good. I couldn't trick you by giving you a whole series of bad arguments and then slipping a good one in. That's well spotted. Um, indeed, this argument is kind of true by definition. But it doesn't really tell you anything about reality. You don't know whether or not Peter is an unmarried man. All this argument tells you is that if this word has this meaning and if Peter is a bachelor which he might not be then <laughs> Peter is an unmarried man but hey he might not be <laughs> um, but it is true by definition so it is a sound argument one last example isn't he cute? <laughs> so cute oh premise all fish lay eggs, 
Second premise, the duck-billed platypus, it's an Australian uh, creature, is a fish. Therefore, the duck-billed platypus lays eggs. False premises. False premises. Yes. Which one, both? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so the dark-billed platypus is not a fish. It's a sort of marsupial thing. It does lay eggs, but it's got one of those pouches and it's young living it. No, it's not a fish. And actually, it's not true to say that all fish lay eggs. Yeah. Male fish often don't lay eggs. (laughs) Good. So... I often say to students, there's, there's not very much to learn, there's not very much content to learn in order to do logical thinking. That flowchart diagram is basically it. You've now learnt the essentials of rigorous logical thinking. Rather, this is a skill. It's not so much something you just memorise and, and, and bring out when occasion demands. It's a skill that you get better and more familiar with and better at using the more you use it. It's a little bit like saying you don't have to learn very much in order to play the flute. Uh, You need to learn the positions of the little black dot on the musical stave, say, eight of them to begin with, and you need to learn that, well, if there's a little black dot there, then I put my fingers like this. And if there's a little black dot there, then I put my fingers like this. So there's very little to learn. But, goodness me, you have to practice a lot before you can really play music in front of an audience. And it's very much like that with, with, with logic and philosophy. Not very much to learn. Anyone can learn it. But you do have to have a bit of dedication to, to keep thinking that way, keep applying it until it becomes second nature to you. Just as you learn the flute long enough, it becomes second nature to make that shape of fingers when you see that note. You don't, you don't have to consciously think about it. You just see an argument and you go, invalid logic. Oh, there's an ambiguity. Oh, no, that, that premise is false. Oh, no, that conclusion doesn't follow. Oh, you know... Uh, so practice makes perfect. Okay, any questions on that little section? I've got another little section that delves a little bit deeper into the theory of knowledge and how arguments relate to knowing things uh, and starts applying some of these issues to the whole debate about God, but that's a good pausing point. Classes is to help people realizing that we, we need to think. Yeah. And we actually think in an age of emotions. Yeah. And, and visual communication and so on. Digging into this helps us to open up the whole perspective. What do we actually think yeah. about God and yeah. reality? Yeah. It would be great to use the last 20 minutes on actually the God question. Yeah. Great. What I often find is is students, whatever they think, this conference does help them to find out, I need to think more about it. I need to think more clearly about it. 
I haven't as yet really seen how to piece together a good argument for what I think. I just have my opinion. Um, whatever that opinion might be in the group. And also the very fact that it's, it's clearly a Christian lecturer who's come in, who is the person who is helping them to develop logical thinking skills, shatters a, a common cultural prejudice about Christians. The Christians are not about thinking carefully about things. It's all just about blind faith, isn't it? Well, rather than coming on directly and saying, you know, Christianity is not about blind faith, let me try and you know, convince you, I come and, come and say, let me, as a, philosopher, as a Christian who's trained in philosophy, help you to argue what you think better. But that doesn't half get them the idea, good grief, the, you know, the one person in my education who's actually taught me logical thinking was a Christian. <laughs> what, what's with that? You know. <laughs> Great. So let me raise this, this issue. Um, when you're arguing about something, if I were the lawyer on the other side, I could, of course, point to any of the premises in Jim Carrey's argument and say, oh, I'm a bit sceptical about that. Could you give me an argument for believing it? And he could try and do that, talking about birth certificates, recording things, and, and justify this that I had questioned. But as soon as he does that, I've made him sort of back up and justify where he's coming from. I could now point at two new premises, and about both of them I could say, oh, I don't really know why I should believe that. Could you give me an argument for believing that, please? And suppose he does. He gives me an argument for this premise and an argument for that premise. He'll have to give me at least four new premises in his new arguments. What am I going to do? I'm going to point to those premises and say, could you give me an argument for believing in... <laughs> it, the problem, in a sense, is getting worse and worse the more he tries to satisfy my demand for, for reasons and evidence. It's interesting, isn't it? In the process of arguing for things, and it obviously does make sense to argue for some things, we can't sort of argue backwards, as it were, justifying every move that we've made, everywhere that we've started arguing from, you can't keep arguing backwards. You just can't. There's an issue of uh, an infinite regress generated here. So philosophers make a distinction between what we call non-basic beliefs, that is, beliefs that you, that you hold, that you accept, because they're based upon other beliefs. Like an argument. An argument has... The premises, the beliefs and the premises lead you to accept the belief in the conclusion. And that's, that's to adopt a non-basic belief because of the argument for it. Yeah. Could that be like uh, argumenting for, because uh, the Bible says so, and then the other person is clearly, clearly not believing it? Yes, well the other person Something. would then say, well, why should I believe that yeah. anything the Bible says is true? Yeah. Uh, well then you could try and give arguments for that. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's the way you should do things, but eventually it doesn't make any sense to keep on always saying, and can you give me a reason for that? And can you give me a reason for that? And can you give me a reason for that? Because 
then you're never going to make any progress in arguing for anything if you take that kind of attitude. If you trace back these non-basic beliefs, arguments, they, eventually you have to trace them back to what we call basic beliefs. Beliefs that you do accept, but not because you've argued for them. That just has to be the case. Basic beliefs are beliefs not based on other beliefs. Because it's, imposs- it's impossible for everything that you believe to be based on and justified by other beliefs. Because that would make, cause an infinite regress of, of arguments. If you're kind of tracing back the family tree of beliefs, you eventually come to some basic beliefs that you hold, that you argue from, without you having to argue for them. When we're doing argument, and this logical syllogistic argument, what we're doing is answering the question, when is it sensible to accept a non-basic belief? It's sensible to accept a non-basic belief when there's a sound argument for it. But all sound argumentation must ultimately depend upon these things that you believe without having to argue for them. So then becomes then a crucial question. How do we decide if a basic belief is what, something that it's sensible to argue from without arguing to? Or not, because clearly there could be, I could, I could just say, well, you should all believe that the moon is made of cheese. It's just a basic belief. I, I don't believe that because of any arguments or anything. Just, you know, come on, adopt that belief. Just pluck it out of the air. Now, that would seem to be the kind of claim that you would want to say, I, actually, I need a reason for believing that. On the other hand, if I said, look, it's obvious that there really is a physical world and that we are all uh, in this room, this physical space, together at the moment. Now, someone could say, ah, but maybe we're not. Maybe we're all like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. (laughs) And there is no physical room. There are no other people. It's all a delusion foisted on you by the evil supercomputer feeding misinformation into your brain in some gooey, icky pod somewhere. It could be true, but actually the burden of proof would be on that person to give us reasons for believing their conspiracy theory. We surely don't have to be the one to say, well, here's a good argument for thinking we're not in the matrix. Just because it it just seems a sensible, basic belief just somewhere that it's sensible to argue from without having to argue to. How do you make this distinction? Just yeah. Uh, is there a different, clear difference between the absolute truth and a basic uh, belief? Uh, yes, I think I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, it's, a, it's a little step on from what I normally do with students, but I'll, I'll add it in at an appropriate point. I won't forget that question. A lot of this comes down to the issue of the burden of, of proof. Who has the burden of proof to, to establish or to falsify a particular truth claim? Um, here's uh, Luke giving uh, some more food-based illustration. In philosophy, we talk a lot about burden of proof. 
often when confronted with a claim that may or may not be true, we have to establish whose burden it is to prove it one way or the other. Take the example of me clearly remembering having eaten lunch. Now, this seems so obvious to me that someone who believes I didn't eat lunch would have to prove that I didn't, rather than me trying to prove that I did. The burden of proof would be on the other to disprove my claim in this instance, and the presumption of truth lies with me. So, the Christian uh, British philosopher from Oxford, Richard Swinburne, who's retired uh, now, um, he very famously put forward what he called a basic principle of knowledge called the principle of credulity. That simply means the principle of when to trust, when to take something on trust. Uh, he says, principle of credulity, we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be to us until we have evidence that we're mistaken. Rather than saying, I ought to be sceptical about the truth of anything until I've been good, given good reason to believe it. Because what would happen if you followed that, that rule? Say, I'm not going to believe anything until I've been given a reason to believe it. Okay, let me try and give you a reason to believe it. I point at the premises of that argument and say, great, logically valid argument, no ambiguous terms for believing in this conclusion. But why should I believe that the premises are true? I oughtn't, I ought not to believe that they're true until you give me a good reason for believing that they're true. So on, and so on, and so on, and so on. I'm just digging myself into an infinite pit of scepticism. So Swimpen says, that's obviously irrational. Hence, you've got to not do that not doing that means that there are some things that you ought to believe until and unless someone has given you enough reason for doubting it. And he says things that just, just seem obvious to you. It just seems obvious to me that we're in this room together. It just seems obvious to me that I remember having honey on bread for breakfast earlier today. Now, I could construct an argument for believing that I had honey on bread for breakfast earlier today. We could do some very interesting forensic science, couldn't we? By stomach pumping me, <laughs> um, and so on, getting uh, eyewitness testimony from other people who were on my table. We could do a lot to construct an argument for the truth of the belief, I had honey on bread for breakfast today. However, I don't have to construct any argument, run through some little syllogistic argument in my mind, in order for me to be perfectly rational in claiming I had honey on bread for breakfast today, just because that seems to me to be the case. I just seem to remember that. So some properly basic beliefs, as they're called, are things that you could argue for, but you don't have to argue for to sensibly believe them and use them as a starting point for arguments. There are other properly basic beliefs, coming back to your question, 
that are sort of even more strongly properly basic, as it were. So if you said, I'm sceptical about that flowchart diagram that I gave you, is it really true that those are the three true conditions that make for a sound argument? How do we know that? Could I please give you an argument for accepting the truth of those conditions in that flowchart diagram? Well, could I? How could I argue that you should accept those conditions without my assuming that they're true in my argument? Because what would I be trying to do in giving you a good argument for accepting them? I'd be trying to meet those conditions. But you're sceptical about those conditions. And you're not going to believe them until I give you a good argument. But I can't give you a good argument unless I already believe them. Unless you already accept them. So it's literally impossible to argue for anything unless you believe that those things are true. It's also literally impossible for you to argue against anything unless you believe that those are true. So you either take it and we have an argument about something else, or you leave it and you go away and stick your fingers in your ear and live in a barrel, like the ancient Greek, one of the ancient Greek philosophers who said, you can't really argue about anything. And he was reduced to sort of wiggling his finger at people famously, because he said, you can't, you can't argue about anything. Hang on a minute. I can't really argue for that because then I'd be arguing for things, wouldn't I? So, yeah. <laughs> so you either take part in the discussion and that means you have to buy into the basic laws of logic and so on. Um, you can have an argument without assuming that the physical world is real. There are people who don't believe that. But Richard Swinburne would say the burden of proof, at least, is on the person who wants to say... I know it seems to you that there really is a physical world, but that's all a delusion. That's not all true. Now, um, when it comes to the question of God, most people immediately think of arguments for and against the existence of God. You know, let's balance up the problem of evil with the cosmological argument or something. Well, yes, that's true. All of that goes on. It's a very interesting debate, and I'm, I'm part of that debate myself in my writings. But there's also another discussion about whether or not belief in God might be a properly basic belief. Not one that's impossible to doubt, like logic, but say one like, it's sensible for me to believe that I had honey on bread, because it just seems to me that I remember that. It's sensible for me to think that I'm in this room with you because it sure seems that way to me. It's sensible of me to think that God exists because it sure seems that I've met him in my religious experience. For people with the right religious experience of God, it seems to them that they've met God. Does that mean that the burden of proof is on the person who wants to say, oh, well, I know it seems to you like you've met God in Israel, but actually that's a delusion and here's why. Such that belief in God, if you have a religious experience or you, you just look at the world and it just strikes you immediately that, well, obviously it had to have some kind of creator and designer. It's not that you're running through some little design argument 
or cosmological argument in your mind. It's just that you, you're out walking in the countryside and you just kind of get this intuitive gut feeling that, wow, this, this all had to come from somewhere, from someone amazing had to put this here. If you have those kind of experiences, maybe that would qualify belief in God for you as a properly basic belief. Now, that wouldn't mean that you couldn't argue for it, just as you could argue for uh, the beliefs about what you had for breakfast by doing some forensic science and whatever. So maybe God is something that's one of those beliefs that's kind of in both categories. Um, But there's more to the discussion about belief in God than simply the arguments for and against God. There's also a whole argument about who if anyone has the burden of proof when it comes to the question of there being a God. I think that is actually one of the core challenges for us as Christians, because Hmm. to us it's obvious that God exists. We experience it uh, and all the rest Hmm. of it, but in in sharing the gospel with people who are sceptical, don't have any idea of that it's at all possible to have an experience. How to come about yeah. it. So it's wonderful to see the, the both set up. That's right. Because even though I experience God, I can still step out of my experience and try to use my logic and yes. try to figure out is it possible to argue for the existence of God? Yeah. And certainly, even if you had a, a properly basic belief in God, it may be that when someone comes to you with an argument against and they try, they try and meet that burden of proof, Perhaps your experience would be enough in its own to kind of overwhelm that objection. But maybe you'd need some kind of argument against the objection, at least. Not a positive argument for God, but at least something that says, this objection is not a sound argument. And therefore doesn't take away from any of the strength of my properly basic belief in God. And then, as you say, when you're trying to argue with people who don't have that experience, um, William Lane Craig makes a useful distinction between knowing that there's a God and being able to show other people that there's a God. And he says, knowing doesn't necessarily rely upon a process of showing that there's a God, of arguing that there's a God. But that doesn't mean that you can't show that there's a God, argue that there's a God, and indeed I think it's perfectly helpful and legitimate to to do both. <laughs> yeah, you've had your hand up. Well, uh, atheists, they tend to to say that, well, Christians have a burden of proof mm. on saying that there is a God. Mm. Uh, how do you respond to that? Yeah. Part- I, is that really true? Well, there's a thriving academic debate and discussion about whether or not that is true. This is not an agreed position amongst philosophers of religion, but it is a position that is argued for and against amongst philosophers of religion. It's one I would argue for, obviously, but it is argued about. Um, A lot of it, though, comes down to the definition of atheists, because you'll find a lot of atheists kind of defining atheism as simply a lack of belief in God. 
The trouble with that definition of atheism is saying I'm an atheist if I just lack a belief in God. And since I'm not making any truth claim, I certainly can't have a burden of proof to show that that truth claim is true, to argue for it, because I'm not making a truth claim. All I'm saying is I don't believe. But that includes within that definition of atheism agnostics. It raises the distinction between agnostics who say, maybe there is a God, maybe there isn't, but I don't know. And atheism, which has traditionally been defined as the, the, the position that says, there isn't a God. I'm claiming to, to know that it's true to say there is no God. It's the classical definition of atheism. And that is a truth claim about reality. And so one might very well think that there is uh, a burden of proof to sustain your truth claim. Um, maybe there's an equal burden of proof on the theist and the atheist because they're both claiming to know something. Yeah. Maybe it's agnostics who don't have a burden of proof because they're the ones who just say, I don't know. <laughs> um, but maybe given religious experience and the principle of credulity, maybe that puts the burden of proof onto people who don't believe that there's a God. See, so there's this argument about, well, what are the right principles to apply? What are the right definitions here? Who, if anyone, has more of a burden of proof than anyone else? Yeah. I was just thinking about science. Mm. Isn't it true that uh, in science you have to prove something is not true? You can't prove something is true? You have to... Yes, this comes back particularly to the philosopher of science, Karl Popper. Yeah. And he was saying, um, you, 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 what's called verify a theory or a hypothesis in science by saying predicting certain experiences that you should, should have if this theory is true and going out and finding that you do indeed find that and that sort of backs up the theory but it says however much of that goes on all it would really take is one contradictory experience to show that the theory is false irrespective of p positive verification if your theory is all swans are white now that hypothesis would predict that any swan you see is going to be white. So you go out into the English countryside and you see some swans on the river and lo and behold, they're white. And you go, tick, verified, my theory. Yeah. The trouble is, if you take the time and the effort to go to Australia, you will see some black swans. Because there are black swans in Australia. And that, as soon as you see your first black swan, maybe you want to scrub it and make sure it's not just, you know, muddy or something. <laughs> but you really look at this black swan, all you need is one counterexample, and you've, you've falsified the theory, all swans are white. So it, 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 there is a sense in which Karl Popper would argue, although you can maybe verify scientific hypotheses, it's actually falsification that's the more kind of certain... Uh, thing and, and therefore all scientific claims are tentative you say this is what we think are the best understanding of reality or the best theory is given the experiences that we've had thus far but we're open to changing our minds because new data new information might come in yeah grand uh, how's our timing 
Really yeah. So, uh, yes. Well, is there any final questions on any of that material? Otherwise, I think we'll stop there as a good stopping point for going and having some tea. I'm very happy to keep chatting one on one during the day, of course. I'm just curious uh, about how. 16-year-olds yeah. in, in England respond to this. I know they have chocolate and we have a lot of, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, and more time than we've had. And then they get into groups and I circulate around the groups and they work in groups for sort of 20 minutes, half an hour, trying to work up their presentations. And I get to interact a bit one-on-one -on -one with them uh, and trying to ask questions of what they're arguing and just get them to struggle with it. And, and the learning experience for me is the fact that they realise that they're struggling with putting together a decent-looking argument that works for what they believe, whatever that is, and encourages the Christians to take arguing more seriously, just as much as the atheists in the room. Yeah. So at the same time as you link to the curriculum that, yeah. are, that they have to learn due to the setup of the school, mm. uh, you help them to realise that they have a faith in something... Mm. They don't quite know in what and how, and very often, not at all, why. Yeah. And uh, this is a wonderful way of, of showing pre-evangelism. Mm. That's mm. really what it is. Yeah. In the schools all over UK, which mm. is wonderful. So we really pray blessings upon this part of the work. And uh, we are happy that at three o'clock we will go into the landscape of five different views of Jesus. So we'll go to the center core of uh, the Bible and see five different views of exploring Jesus. That'll be great. great. But uh, use the opportunity to talk to him, ask mm. questions, discuss him, quarrel if you want to. Very happy to. Anyway, tea time and uh, hang there, where are you? Yeah. You would like us together.